Welcome to the Skill of Bali podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Adam Dakin, the health tech partner at Dreamit. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, delighted to be here, Mike. Thank, thanks so much for the invitation. And it's, it's really a pleasure, especially after having your colleague that is leading the Secure Tech uh, Vertical, uh, Mel Shakir, by the, by the way, the ones who were not able to listen to that podcast and are interested in the cybersecurity space. Uh, that's a good, uh, a great episode to listen to. And I'm really excited to hosting you. You have co-founded uh, five health tech uh, companies uh, already with Dreamits, according to my records of your LinkedIn. For almost five years, you are almost doing your, your fifth uh, birthday in, in July. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. You have an amazing track record in the space, but uh, even more than me talking about you, why don't you introduce to, to the community? Oh, well, I appreciate the kind words, Mike. Thanks. So yeah, five-time co-founder. Um, I was the CEO of three of those companies, raised venture money for all of them. A couple went pretty well. A couple were abysmal failures. Uh, one of them still keeps me up at night and the jury's still out on the last one, sort of crossing fingers and hope we can get that one um, across the finish line. So yeah, I'm mostly an operator, 25 years of really operational experience. And then just as you said, five years ago, moved over to the investment side with Dream Adventures. That's that's really awesome. And uh, and to tell us, uh, Mel Shakir already shared a little bit of your thesis on the previous show. But for the ones who are just listening to to this show and more interested in health tech, let us know a little bit more about uh, investment thesis, developer position of uh, of Dreamit, uh, etc. Sure. So Dreamit is a Philadelphia-based venture fund that we invest all over the world. Um, this is our fourth fund. Uh, our Focus, as you mentioned earlier, is really exclusively on two verticals, health tech and cyber tech. You, had, you already spoke to Mel about cyber tech. My team leads the health tech focus. For us, health tech is really uh, software and healthcare IT and medical mm -hmm. devices. Very limited there. We don't go beyond those two areas. So no drug discovery or compound development. Those sorts of things are really beyond, beyond our scope. Um, our focus is late seed series A companies. These companies are in market with early sort of proof points around commercialization. Uh, they've typically raised some of some capital, not necessarily mm -hmm. a lot, but some, some have bootstrapped. And uh, they typically have at least a handful of referenceable customers. That's certainly true for the software platforms that we invest in. Uh, we go a little bit earlier on the device side because devices, you can get proof points a little bit earlier with clinical data and IP and key opinion leaders who are behind the product. Uh, what's really unique about our investment model is that we've built out a network now on the health tech side, which is approaching a hundred partners who uh, include payers and plans, large enterprise healthcare systems uh, and big pharma partners and a few multinationals mixed in there as well. And these partners are kind enough to give us red carpet access to senior level decision makers within those organizations because they know we're bringing in the best of the best startups that solve big and urgent problems on their short list. So we're super selective. My, my team will look at well over 500 companies a year to find the 10 or 12 we work with. And then we only invest once they've gone through this process, we call them customer sprints. But huge value for a startup because, as you know, particularly, I'm sure this is true in other verticals, but in healthcare, especially, you know, sort of post-pandemic, I guess we can call it post-pandemic, uh, getting access <laughs> to decision makers was always hard in healthcare. Now it's damn near impossible, right? How, how do you get a meeting with a chief nursing officer, a chief medical officer, the chief, you know, the chief information officer? It's right. almost impossible to get in front of those folks. But we're fortunate because having developed these very warm relationships over the last 10 plus years, we get them to meet with our startups through this process we call customer sprints, where twice a year our partners are kind enough to listen to the pitches from those five or six startups that we may be working with any moment in time. And then we know what these partners are looking for. So we do a lot of prep work, curation of these meetings ahead of time on the customer side to make sure the right people are in the Zoom room 
and on the startup side to make sure their pitch is really tight, well rehearsed and hitting the value props that we right. know are important to our customer partners. And we do something very similar on the investment side. We reach out to about 1300 venture funds when our startups are raising. They also know how carefully selected and vetted these startups are, so they take a close look. And through that process, we're typically organizing somewhere between 25 and 40 one-on-one -on -one curated meetings with venture funds who have already been qualified with regard to the stage, the space, um, the size of the raise. You know, if they've opted in to meet with you, uh, you know, it's it's a meeting with a qualified investor. So hyper efficient for startups to get. Uh, access to institutional investors. Again, we spend a lot of time getting them game ready, rehearsing, making sure that the pitch decks are tight because we know what investors are going to want to hear in that in that meeting. And, and our track record is really good. About half of our companies close an institutional raise shortly after getting through this process. It's all virtual. Okay. Uh, yep. And we co-invest in the vast majority of those, to be clear, we don't lead rounds. So we're not setting terms. Mm -hmm. We're not taking board seats. We're just working like mad to find to help find you a lead investor because the truth is our model is we get a tiny bit of equity, advisor equity up front, but we make money as a venture investor. So if we if you don't scale, create value, and we don't invest in you, it's a loss for us. Right. We've done a lot of work for not a lot of pay if we ultimately don't invest. And our typical check sizes, first check size is around 750, sometimes more. And then we reserve an equal amount for, or more for future rounds. Got it. Uh, as the audience is global, uh, even if the, even the majority of the audience is based in, in the U.S., uh, Dreamit is very U.S. centric at, at this stage, right? So yes, in the sense that our value add, we believe is accelerating go-to-market strategies into the US market. So that doesn't mean you're necessarily a US company. We were early investors in a company called Informatica. Very cool yeah. platform, um, uses AI to triage patients to the right direct, I should say direct patients to the right point of care. That's a <laughs> Polish-based startup. Um, Poland, as you probably know, has brilliant mathematicians and a ton of uh, great AI technology. When we connected with Informatica, their focus was, okay, they were scaling nicely in Europe, but they're like, hey, we need some help figuring out how to enter the US market. That's where we came in and helped them get access to US-based customers and really inform their whole go-to-market strategy, which is, as you can imagine, because the payer system, the provider system is dramatically different in the US than it is in other places. You have to rethink your go-to-market strategy because you can't just sort of replicate what you've done in other countries and assume it's going to work in the right. US market. So even if you start in another region and you want to scale in the US, uh, Dreamit is still a, a potential partner for, for that path. And, and that exactly. I mean, we see ourselves as this, as your scaling partner into the US market. You know, that could be enterprise healthcare systems, it could be payers and health plans, or it could be big pharma partners. Love it. And you said you see how many companies a year that you invest in 10, 12 uh, companies uh, every year? Right. So we will look at over 500 startups uh -huh. to find those 10 or 12 that we're going to work with every year. So I always jokingly say it's, you know, it's twice as hard to get into Dreamit as it is to get into Harvard. Uh, you know, Harvard has actually a 6% acceptance rate. The only school tougher to get into Harvard is Stanford, like a 5.5% acceptance rate. Okay. <laughs> and we have about, call it a 3%, if I'm going to round up, we have about a 3% acceptance rate. That's great, and uh, which is awesome. You have uh, a lot of exposure into the health system in general and the different decision makers and also into, into the startups, uh, which helps us to, to kind of bring the, the next topic of our conversation, which are what are the trends and how do you envision the future of health tech uh, given uh, your track record and what you have been seeing uh, in the market? So not surprisingly, we're super excited, even though there's certainly no shortage of problems and challenges that we need to address in the healthcare system. I think just one quick metric that highlights that is the fact that the U.S. spends 19% of gross domestic product, GDP, on healthcare. 
That's actually <laughs> twice as much as our next as the next closest developed country. That's the UK that spends about 10%. Yet on almost any objective measure, we're not even in the top 10 on clinical outcomes. So if you want to look at longevity, quality of life, infant mortality, um, I mean, the, just on almost any you know, incidence of chronic diseases, we're, our, our results just don't justify this fact, fact that we spent, we're not getting our money's worth, let's, let's put it that way, right? We're clearly not, and 20%, almost 20% of GDP on healthcare is not sustainable. Our, our economy can't keep, continue to spend this kind of money. So what does that mean? That means we have to find a way to move the cost curve. We have to find a way to deliver better care at lower cost, right? This is no brilliant insight. Everybody in healthcare <laughs> is aware that, you know, that this has to happen. So those sorts of the, the trends that are kind of riding this wave, you know, some of them are pretty obvious. The shift to virtual mm -hmm. care is very obvious. The pandemic that shift was already underway. The pandemic was just a catalyst, really, to moving more care outside of the brick and mortar of a hospital, because the overhead in a hospital, you know, it it's really doesn't make sense. For a lot of simple sort of low acuity procedures, why are you doing those in a hospital setting when they could be done in an outpatient clinic or maybe even in your home? Right. However, to move those sort of acute sort of those, the, the acute care or those, those procedures outside of the hospital infrastructure, that's where technology comes in. Mm -hmm. So if you want to deliver care in the home, as one example, you need technology to keep track of the patient. For example, we're investors in a, a company called Vitals. Um, you know, it's a device for tracking um, vitals, vital signs in the home. So lots of enthusiasm, lots of different use cases there, but if you're going to send patients home early after surgery, or if you're going to do procedures in the home, you're going to want to keep, you know, it's pretty basic. You're going to want to keep track of the patient's vital signs, make sure they're doing well, if early signs of complications, infections, other things you want to pick up on those early before they, they exacerbate. That's where technologies come into play. Another company, we're investors in a company called Stell. Stell has a device, looks like a small nightlight that you plug into the wall. What Stell does, it automatically pairs any single device that you send into the home. So that could be a scale, that could be a pulse oximeter, right? Uh, that could be a blood pressure cuff, you name it. Got it. But the burden shouldn't be on the patient to how to figure out how to connect and pair those things, right? We shouldn't be asking them to get on their cell phones and connect their <laughs> scales to their Wi-Fi, particularly in the more elderly population that may not be tech savvy. Yeah. That's kind of an unfair burden to place on the patient. So we're excited about Stell because they automate that pairing. So that's kind of the, the pick, you know, selling pickaxes to the miners, right? The infrastructure to enable remote care means you have to be able to connect devices in the home and communicate that data wherever the provider wants it to go in a format that's easily digestible for them. So, mm -hmm. you know, that this shift to virtual care, again, no great insight here, but lots of platforms that are doing that, that ranges from the technologies that I just described, actual physical technologies to information technologies, helping the clinician have a more enriched telehealth visit, right? Surfacing information in real time when that doctor's speaking with the patient so they have all the critical information they need right in front of them on a moment's mm -hmm. notice that we, you know, we mine their the electronic health record to surface key insights that will drive the appropriate interventions that the clinician thinks are, are appropriate for the patient. And then another kind of big area that I think has, again, been accelerated by the pandemic is what you often hear called the consumerization of healthcare. Uh, and there are many components to the consumerization of healthcare. It starts with the fact that, as we all know, consumption of healthcare is not a very satisfying experience. Right. You know, anybody who's had a loved one in the hospital in the United States knows it's not fun. In fact, it's incredibly frustrating because it, it's, it's, I mean, it starts with you, the information flow. You know, it's very hard to find mm -hmm. out what's going on, what's being done to your loved one, what the clinical process protocol treatment plan is going to be. How do you, once you have that, how do you keep track of it? Do you know if the right things are being done? Um, so there's, 
that's on the patient side. The experience just isn't very good. On the provider side, 50% of doctors say they're burned out and contemplating leaving right. healthcare. So we, we have to make this a better experience for the providers or they're just not, you know, we already, we're already grossly understaffed. I mean, nursing staff shortage is a freaking crisis in the United States. Mm-hmm. Again, that's driving costs. Hospitals having to hire travel nurses at two to three times the cost you know, of a traditional uh, full-time nurse employee. That, that's not sustainable either. Um, so we have a, a company we're excited about called Park and RN. It enables sort of more efficient mm-hmm. virtual telehealth engagement with patients. Uh, but in the consumerization of healthcare, I mean, think about when we consume healthcare, we don't really know what we're getting. We're not sure what that basket of goods and services is. We, we don't really know what it costs. You know, mm-hmm. I had a shoulder surgery a few years back. I had no idea what that shoulder, I tried to find out, good luck. Try calling a hospital and ask them what your procedure is going to cost and what your copay is. Or try calling your insurance company and say, I'm having your shoulder operation. How much of this is on me? Good luck. I mean, I got a bill after that surgery from an anesthesiologist who I never remember even meeting. And I said, well, I already paid my copay and my insurance company already paid for the operation. It's like, oh yeah, but the anesthesiologist bill is totally separate and you got to pay for that. It's like, wow. what? I had no, this was never discussed with me. I never right. became aware of this. So, you know, there's legislation now, the no surprise legislation that's, that's now in place so mm-hmm. that you can't this to patients anymore. Um, but, you know, that's also fairly nuanced in terms of how it works. But bottom line is, you know, when you think about your Amazon experience, it's the complete opposite of your healthcare experience. Because you go to Amazon, right. you know exactly what you're getting, you know exactly what it costs, and you have yeah. a pretty yeah. good sense of the quality based on the crowdsourced information from all the other people who've used that product, right? It's a yeah. complete opposite of healthcare where it's completely all of those things are completely opaque. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but they're mostly opaque. You don't know what you're getting when you buy healthcare. So again, platforms that make that data more transparent and improve the experience for both patients and providers um, are huge opportunities for startups. Yeah, amazing uh, trends. I also enjoy uh, this typical paradox that we face in health tech, which is to in, improve the quality or the standard of care and lower the cost. Uh, also, there is, a, of course, a, a clear uh, pattern that our population is getting older and older, uh, which means uh, we are seeing the chronic diseases uh, increase and 80% of the costs uh, of health tech comes from uh, chronic diseases, right? It, it does. You know, I, I had a conversation not too long ago with the chief medical officer from a large enterprise healthcare system. And I thought his take was really, really interesting, Mike. Exactly what you said, right? We all know that a huge majority of the costs are driven by chronic diseases. No question. And you see so many technologies trying to improve the outcomes for that chronic disease population, right? We just manage your diabetes or your COPD or your hypertension better, and we can keep you out of the emergency department. Man, all the money we can save. Problem is, at least according to this CMO, it's at that point, it's too late. You know, you're you're going to those expenses are gonna be incurred. You know, the, the horse is out of the barn. Spending money there doesn't generate a return the way one would like for the simple reason that changing behavior is super hard, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. chronic disease patients, people, you know, getting them to change their way of life and getting anybody to change their way of life. Anybody just, you know, we all want to go on diets. We all want to lose weight. We all want to exercise more, but how many of us actually do it, even though we know it's the right thing to do, right? And same goes for chronic disease patients. So this CMO had a really interesting observation. He said, I, you know, I asked him, I said, oh, are you optimistic about all these exciting platforms that manage diabetes and hypertension and <laughs> remote data? And so we can interview. And he goes, honestly, I'm not. I'm not because I don't really think it can move the needle that much. I think we need to spend the money right earlier on in preventing these right. diseases because you prevent the disease. Now you save a ton of money. Right, you save the entire cost of care for that chronic disease versus great. You know, we saved twenty thousand dollars because we avoided one emergency department visit in Mrs. Jones last year. Is that really generating the ROI that's going to move that nineteen percent GDP down to fifteen percent or down to ten percent and still deliver the outcomes? His take on it was no. If you're not dealing with the preventative side of diseases, 
you're never going to really move the cost curve you know, in a meaningful way. That's and then, of course, there's, pay- oppor- there's opportunities, right, for platforms yes. that do that. And we're investors in a company called Wealth. And Wealth is, you know, sort of a patient engagement, patient incentive platform to give people <laughs> certain rewards for them to engage in healthier behavior um, or to quit bad habits like smoking. But they have a very unique approach to that because the common thing is great. Quit smoking and, you know, we'll give you an Amazon gift card. Well, <laughs> does that really work? I don't know. Not, I don't think the, the data backs that up. They have a different approach, which is based on something called loss aversion, where you give people the reward first, and then if they don't meet the goal, you take it away. The psychology of that's been very well validated in the clinical literature that once people envision themselves, once they, once they have ownership mm-hmm. of something, then they're much more motivated to keep it as opposed to, I'll get something I never had if I do the right thing. So lots of opportunities in the startup and technology world for platforms that can drive healthier behavior before people, you know, before disease states at exacerbate to the point where they are very costly to take care of. Yeah. Just to wrap up this, um, this segment, uh, there is really something interesting in, in this space, which is a lot of the people or of the patients who have chronic diseases are not able to sign up for a health insurance plan and to have, uh, to have that condition uh, covered. So it's good to see also a movement of um, health tech companies creating almost insurance companies with uh, their own model. Uh, where they they will decrease the cost because they know how to prevent those diseases from evolving and presenting better, um, let's say, uh, policies or better packages for for the ones who are uh, signing up for for those uh, insurance plans. Yeah, no, it's a super interesting trend of startups saying, listen, if we believe in the ROI, if we can save the healthcare provider five, 10, 15 dollars for every dollar spent on our platform, maybe we should be the ones capturing that economic rent. Right. Instead of banging our head against the wall, going through a 12 or a 24 month sales cycle to get a big bureaucratic enterprise healthcare exactly. system that you know moves at a glacial pace to adopt new technology, in part because they're bureaucratic, in part because people's lives are on the line. You don't change behaviors easily unless you're really confident that you've tested it and it's gonna work. Um, you know, And in part because changing behavior of providers is just super hard. Um, So there is this sort of next generation of startups saying, listen, we'll deliver the care ourselves. We see this, we've seen several startups on the behavioral health side um, saying, listen, we believe that we can engage with patients on our own behavioral health platform and drive down the cost of care. Forget it. We're not going to try to get contracts with enterprise healthcare systems. We're just going to become the provider ourselves. Now, that's not easy, right? I mean, there's all kinds of challenges associated with becoming your own provider, state-by-state licensing, getting individual payers to pay for your platform. Uh, So it's a much more capital-intensive process, generally speaking, to become a provider and to compete with, you know, what the folks that were traditionally your customers are now who you are now your competitors. So it's an entirely different model, but it's a really interesting one and, and time will tell if there, you know, if there are opportunities there. Love it. Uh, and let's go into more the operator side and what you see across your uh, portfolio, uh, which is uh, you, you get in typically at late seat uh, pre-series A. So what are the common mistakes that you see uh, health tech entrepreneurs uh, do uh, during that stage? So, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's, there, 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 the list is actually is, is pretty long, right? Not, not surprising, <laughs> but we'll, and again, if folks haven't seen the Dream at Doses, which are something my partners and I do, I think we try to really highlight a lot of those mistakes and best practices. They're short five minute videos. I think we have 60 of them now covering all kinds of topics from fundraising to pitching customers to actually what, what do specific slides need to look like uh, because we see these mistakes repeat themselves over, you know, we're listening to over 500 pitches a year. And, right. you know, there's some of these mistakes just you see on, on really on a, on a daily basis. So yeah, we see over 500 pitches a year and we see the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and that's why we prepared this series called the Dream It Dose, um, up to 60 videos now, five minute 
sort of short videos on best practices and mistakes uh, and how to correct those mistakes more importantly um, that, that we see over and over again. But I would say by far the most common mistake we see is around the problem statement, not crisply and clearly defining the problem. Who has it? What's the impact and the consequence of that problem, the financial impact and consequence of that problem in a quantitative, meaningful way. And then it's such a simple concept, but it gets missed over and over again, which is who pays and why. And it's mm -hmm. really surprising how many times that a company will pitch and they'll jump right into the solution. Right. As if we already bought off on your problem. We have this <laughs> amazing widget and doctors will use it to to identify cancer more quickly. And then our AI engine will identify the best treatments. Hold up. What exactly, what problem are you solving for who? And I nice. cannot tell you how many times we will interrupt the startup early in the pitch and say, stop, stop. I want you to finish the sentence for me. The problem we solve is mm -hmm. now complete that statement. And here's the thing, that's actually not an easy question to answer unless you've done a lot of customer discovery. So that's sort of part two of the mistake, which is how many customers have you actually spoken to? Do you mm -hmm. really truly understand the standing in their shoes, the problem that you're trying to solve? Because so many times, you know, startups will say, well, that just makes sense, right? I mean, they, we sort of say that every doctor is going to want one. And we have a, a sort of a saying in treatment, which is, you know, you can point at data, but you cannot wave your hands. Okay? <laughs> Do the work. I remember one of our startups uh, we've invested in a really awesome company is called HealthNote. Founder and CEO, that's a doctor. But when he pitched us, um, it's an awesome platform. It automates data collection pre-visit so that before you go to your doctor's visit, your primary care, your specialist visit, all the critical information about your condition has been collected and summarized for that doctor before the patient encounter. But I remember the founder, Josh, saying, I surveyed 120 doctors when I was thinking about putting this platform together. I really wow. understand. I'm a doctor, but I didn't assume I understood the problem. <laughs> I talked to 120 doctors, right? That's how you do customer discovery. One, you will understand the problem way better which will inform, obviously, how your solution tackles that problem. Um, and two, it gives you tremendous credibility when you talk to investors. Like, right. As soon as I'm here, you talk to 120 doctors, I'm leaning in. Because I assume you have a really good understanding of a big and urgent problem. You wouldn't be doing this unless those doctors told you this needs to get solved. So I would say when we work with a company at Dreamit, I'm not kidding, we spend the first month just tightening up the problem statement, right? And mm -hmm. that problem statement, it informs everything else. It informs your messaging around your solution, the value prop, what metrics right. you're going to measure yourself by. How are you going to generate an ROI for this customer? Who are the stakeholders that will be involved, right? You're almost never sold. And you're selling enterprise healthcare. You are never selling to one decision maker, okay. right? You may have a clinical champion, but... All the stakeholders, the IT department, the nurses, the administrators, the finance, the budgeting, mm -hmm. the nurse managers, going to be a lot of people that get involved. As part of your customer discovery, are you understanding their, you know, getting their take on the problem? Because again, can't tell you how many startups come to us and are like, well, we, and even in the case of Help Though, Josh, he spoke to lots of other stakeholders. He didn't just talk to 120 doctors. He spoke to the nurses. He spoke to the administrators. Right. Got the more global view of, does this problem need to be solved? And the buyers involved, what will they want to see before they'll plunk down their dollars to invest in this? What are the proof points? How will I, how will I demonstrate with data and evidence that this is delivering, that this is actually solving the problem? Right. So it is definitely the, the most common mistake is jumping in starting development of your platform. It could be, we see it, it's very common with medical devices, but it's also common with software where mm -hmm. you're just so convinced that you're solving a problem that needs to be solved that you don't pause to go talk to a bunch of customers and hear the problem. Because um, one of our partners, Todd Dunn, who leads uh, innovation at Atrium, um, 
he always one of his concerns one of the one of the issues that he has highlighted with startups is they come in and they just assume we have the problem right you just start pitching me you haven't even asked me anything about my problem my system you just assume that i have the problem and you start pitching me on your solution one right. it's sort of almost intellectually offensive because you haven't spent any i mean basic sales right, right. sales one one understand the needs of your customer but Number two, you need to understand that because you, if you just start pitching your solution, you know, it's like throwing darts at a board. You hope, you know, you're throwing stuff against the wall and you hope that something in there resonates with the needs of your customer. But, you know, you've sold to one healthcare system. You've sold to one healthcare system. If I've sold to Atrium, the value prop for their system for the same platform could be very different than if I've sold to a small community hospital. And so understanding those specific needs, the specific needs of specific customers is really, really important. So, yeah, uh, then I would say other sort of common yeah. mistakes that that startups make maybe on that on that short list, um, under, underestimating how hard it is to get commercial adoption, understanding even, OK, great, I got a great understanding of the problem now and I'm excited that I think my solution will solve it. Don't assume in healthcare, you know, no one will beat a path to your door. Trust me, no matter how awesome your solution is, you know, the, the we build it and they will come attitude is never how it works in healthcare. Even if you have the cure for cancer, they're not going to beat a path to your door, right? You have to really understand how your solution fits into their system. Workflows are super important in healthcare, right? I always joke, you could have the cure for cancer, but if you add 10 minutes to somebody's day, not going to use it. They're already working 12 hour days. They're already exhausted at the end of the day. You're a provider. Your mission is to get your head, you know, between two fluffy pillows at the end of the day, right? It's not to find the next awesome innovation that adds more work that may be better, maybe not, but it, it takes. So I think a lot of founders and entrepreneurs, they just underestimate the time and the friction and the process yeah. it takes to get a healthcare system to adopt something new. And then that cascades into the next problem was just, you know, it's just, you're not only under, underestimating the sales cycle, but then that means you're underestimating the amount of capital and the time it will take for you to get those early proof points and put yourself in a position to raise more capital and to scale, right? I have a, a venture capital friend of mine always says, multiply all timeline and cash flow projections by pi. Five. Wow. Five pi. 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 You know, three point uh, five nine. Exactly. 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 As far as yes. My um, pi. Yes. And you know what? I look back at all the startups I've been involved with. I, I think I've served on a dozen boards now, and it's not far off. It really right. isn't. It always takes longer. It always costs way more. There's always something that happens. You know, it's the unknown unknowns. There's stuff that will. You know, who predicted right. the pandemic? Right. Well. For some companies, that was a tailwind. For a lot of companies, it just launched them into limbo. Like they were moving along with a the hospital. They were going through the, the trial to purchase phase. They were going through, oh, over, stop, freeze, don't go any further. We're not even talking to you until we figure out how we're going to manage this pandemic thing, right? Nobody could predict that. Well, you're sitting around burning capital for the next 12 to 18 months while you're sort of stalled here. So Assume it, you know, assume it's going to take longer, assume it's going to take more capital than you think it will, you know, and raise more money than you think you need. Always take money when it's available to you. Again, I talking to a startup right now that I'm involved with, uh, you know, and they're like, well, we don't really want to raise more than this because this capital is diluted. I'm like, if you have an opportunity to get more capital, take it. Don't even <laughs> think twice about it. The dilution at the end of the day is not going to matter. If you succeed, you will do well. But if you run out of money, the consequences will be dire. Right. You know, rule number one, the top job of every single CEO is to keep the company well capitalized. That is job number one. There isn't even a close mm -hmm. second because if you get close to, the, to sort of that cliff of running out of capital, the consequences of down rounds, repricing stock options, letting employees go, That's you know, it, it, it completely changes, you know, the, the landscape for your startup. Um, so it's, it's a situation you never, never, ever, ever, never, if you get nothing else out of this podcast, 
never, ever, ever, ever run out of cash. Rule right. number one, do <laughs> not run out of cash. Love it. And it's, it's especially relevant uh, in the times that we are living uh, today, right? Uh, with some yeah. uncertainty in the markets. Yeah, the market conditions have changed dramatically in the last three or four months. I mean, it was really interesting times that sort of, and, and we all know the, you know, the, the Rock Hill data, um, how, you know, every year was another 20, 30% increase in digital health investment. Yeah. Um, that the market has shut down considerably right now. Uh, we're seeing term sheets get pulled. We haven't seen that in years. We're seeing rounds get repriced. We haven't seen that in years. Yeah. Uh, so it's, Right now, it's it's a tough time to be a seed Series A. That said, we have startups in our portfolio raising just close rounds at great valuations, Second. great investors. So really good deals with evidence and traction behind them and, yeah. and great management team. They're still raising capital. Yeah. But the earlier stage stuff has gotten a lot tougher. And these we were, we were routinely seeing startups saying, oh, we're a $20 million pre-money valuation. We're a $30 million pre-money valuation. And for us, as a seed Series A investor, we're very valuation sensitive. We have to be, or our model, our thesis just doesn't work. So for us to invest right. in a pre-revenue company at a $30 million valuation is really tough. And you roll the math forward, that's not going to generate the returns that we need to be a successful fund. But we would routinely have startups saying, well, you know, you don't invest on us at $30 million. We don't care. We got 10 other investors down the street who are willing to come in. Right. So Nice talking to you. Those conversations are not happening anymore. Um, it's it's amazing how there's been a sudden uh, increase in humility among startup founders because market conditions have changed and raising capital has suddenly. I mean, it it is kind of it's it's really surprising how quickly the market changed in terms of access to capital and valuations. It's incredible. The good thing that's that's what you said. Uh, staying positive. If if you have the team, uh, if you have the metrics, uh, there is still uh, room to to move forward. Uh, if there is no metrics, uh, no team, no vision, no clarity, that would be very very difficult in in good conditions and in bad conditions. Uh, it's almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, and it really it 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 also raises the bar in terms of as a startup if you're out raising yeah. capital. You know, to really have that full business model, you know, all the aspects of the model carefully thought through and vetted, where I think before there was capital coming in from less sophisticated investors who thought, well, this seems like a good team. This seems like a compelling problem to solve. We'll invest without having fully vetted all the aspects of the business model. Right. You know, another yes, common mistake SARS makes, very common mistake, not a clear go-to-market strategy. Um, when startups pivot, it's almost always not most frequently, it's because the go to market strategy had to change. You know, mm -hmm. the, the way they were pitching the problem yeah. wasn't resonating. The way they were pricing the platform wasn't resonating. The customers they were targeting weren't the right customers. The messaging wasn't right mm -hmm. to those customers. Those are the, the common pivots around go to market strategy. So that's a place where, and Unfortunately, a lot of founders come from technical backgrounds. So, you know, they, they can program great and they really, you know, you know, they're very skilled in terms of the ability to advance the technology, but they don't come from a marketing background where they're really understanding what a go-to-market strategy actually means. And I would say six or nine months, you probably get away with that and still get your company funded. But today, investors are going to drill down and they're going to drill down hard. And if you don't really understand your go-to-market strategy, probably you're not getting funded. Good, good point. And uh, we would love to, co to cover much more of those uh, mistakes or lessons learned. But uh, again, I really recommend you to go into three doses. Uh, all of this stuff that we've been discussing about in terms of the common mistakes are there. Very well explained it. Uh, I really love the, the videos uh, that you guys put together and uh, congrats. And and please, to our audience, uh, go into to the Dreamit website or to the YouTube and you will see the doses that I'm still also myself consuming uh, and learning from them. And we get into the final segment of the show, which is a quick question and uh, an answer. So if 
if you'd have the opportunity to have a, a conversation with Adam at the beginning of your journey as investor, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Uh, yeah, I guess um, one, you know, find what you're passionate about. Uh, you know, when I got out of school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I started out in management consulting, quickly learned that wasn't my cup of tea. Um, so, you know, you're, you're much more likely to succeed if you jump out of bed in the morning and you're excited about what you're doing. Healthcare is obviously a great place because, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully we're making people better and we're improving the human condition. I think that's why most people in healthcare do what they do. Um, but, you know, I, I, my first job out of school, you know, I was hitting the snooze bar three times in the morning. I, I was not excited to go to work. Um, so in hindsight, I realize it's just your, you know, your, the quality of your life and your enjoyment will, you know, is, is tied to your career and it's tied to your work and your, your identity is tied to your job. So do something you really love and you're passionate about. And that may take, you may have to do some experimenting to find what you're passionate about. But get on a career trajectory that aligns with something that you really care deeply about, where you're, you feel like you're on a mission to improve the world through whatever platform or product that, that you're working on. And then the other piece of advice was given to me by a very renowned venture capitalist. Her name was Brenda Gavin. She started three different venture funds in Philadelphia. Super smart, very successful um, venture capitalist. Uh, and she taught me the seven most important words in business. And the seven most important words in business are never underestimate the importance of being liked. Let that settle in for a second. Never underestimate the importance of being liked. And I cannot tell you how many times we talk to an entrepreneur who acts in a way that's just not likable. You come across not likable, you come across as uncoachable. When my partners and I talk to a startup for the first time, inevitably, the first comment after we hang up the call, you know, in the Zoom room, the first thing somebody says is, oh, I really liked her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, or is, I didn't like that founder at all. Did you like that guy? I did not like that guy. And you know what? <laughs> Guess what? You're probably not getting funded. It's, it's a very sort of subjective kind of, I, you know, it's just not somebody I want to work with. I, that's just, the guy was a little abrasive. He was a little obnoxious, probably right. not coachable. So likability is just, it's, it's sort of a, it's this unstated critical yeah. characteristic, but Amazing. people who are likable are so much more successful than people who are not likable. And it's just, I, we see it every day with entrepreneurs. I mean, we have founders, that, there's certain founders that I say have the gift of likability. Uh, you yeah. just, you want to help them. Just, you know, when your friends call you and you need something done, you'll do anything for your friends, right? Exactly. Um, when someone calls you, you don't like, and they start asking you for favors, mm, probably not so much. <laughs> so, I think that's something that, you know, I wish I had a better appreciation for when, you know, when I was younger. I can be like too. And what are you the most proud of uh, on your journey so far? Um, well, I mean, it's a little cliche, but it is true. I mean, you know, family first, right? That's always, you know, way more important than, you know, always balancing work. Work-life balance is really important, but I am fortunate. Awesome, awesome spouse, awesome kids. My kids are out, started their own careers, just crushing it right now. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's a little bit cliche, but it is true that far and away. Um Career-wise, I think, you know, the, the platforms I've worked on have made people better. Like they have improved the human condition. You know, I've worked on a bunch of different medical devices, cardiovascular, right. orthopedic devices that actually did generate better outcomes, made people recover from diseases or injuries more quickly. You know, and at, at the end of the day, that's the yardstick by which, I mean, I think right. most health tech entrepreneurs will will measure themselves. Um, some of them were financial successes and they delivered good returns to, to the investors. And some of them were, you know, were failures. Um, and it, you know, again, it's cliche, but it's totally true. You really do learn more from your failures than you learn from your successes. So uh, um, it's fortunate or unfortunate, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot. Uh, and along those ways, the other thing that I guess I really 
that makes my, why I'm passionate about my job is that I get to help the next generation of entrepreneurs navigate mm -hmm. around the minefields that I drove into when I was a young entrepreneur, because I didn't really have a lot of good mentors or advisors when I was starting my first couple of companies. So I made practically every mistake you can make when I started those companies. So bringing that pattern recognition and helping sort of these entrepreneurs stay off the rocks or seeing, you know, seeing those icebergs in the distance that they can't see yet because they haven't been through this before. That's just a really rewarding part of, you know, of, of what I do every day. And then seeing those companies flourish, nothing better than seeing, you know, a founder with just a handful of employees, you know, go from, you know, a very early platform to a scaled successful business. That's, you know, there's financial rewards for that, but the personal rewards are incredible. Love it. Definitely purpose and legacy. Worst advice ever received? The worst advice. Um, <laughs> been given a lot of bad advice, but I will circle back just to try to make it more relevant to the startups out there. Yeah. Um, where I've made mistakes is on, on advice around go-to-market strategy mm -hmm. because every, uh, everybody on your board, you know, captains of industry will have ideas on what your go-to-market strategy should right. be. And honestly, if you get that wrong, it's a huge setback for a startup. And where startups frequently get this wrong is they start out with a consumer go-to-market strategy. Mm -hmm think, oh, well, that'll be, you know, forget the healthcare systems. We'll just start getting people to, our platform is so awesome. Our app is so amazing. They'll just download it in the app store and they'll pay, you know, $15 right. a month to use it. That strategy generally doesn't work. Um, there's a great article by Paul Yock, Paul Yock uh, founder of Stanford's biodesign program that he wrote in, in Startup uh, Magazine about the fact that 60% of startups that start as direct to consumer eventually pivot to a B2B business model. So while it's super tempting to think, oh, we can get to the market quickly, we can just start generating revenues, it's really hard to acquire, you know, to cost effectively acquire consumers. And one of my startups, we had an outspoken board member for a platform and this board member was like, you gotta go direct to consumer. That's where we're going. I wrote the biggest check. Uh, I had a different view of that, but hey, if this was a smart experienced investor, and we followed the path to, to direct to consumers in unmitigated disaster. Um, it really set the company back. So, uh, you know, you, you got, if you really believe something, you got to hold your ground, right? Even if you're getting advice from board members or investors, um, if you're getting guidance or advice that you don't, you don't agree with or don't believe in, you know, as the CEO or founder of the company, you need to step up. You have to support your argument with evidence and data. So do the work. But yeah, I think that's, you know, that, that was some of the worst advice I got. And I, and I, I share that because I see it over and over again yeah. with different startups who I, I, I can't even tell you how many startups pitch us that say they start their pitch with, well, we started with direct to consumer, but now we're B2B. Right. <laughs> that's true. Great, great advice for the worst advice. Uh, thank you, Adam. And uh, quick resources, uh, favorite book? Um, Endurance, uh, The Incredible Voyage of Ernest Shackleton, which for those of you who don't know, Ernest Shackleton, uh, back in 1916, attempted to be the first explorer to circumnavigate the South Pole. Wow. Uh, he got shipwrecked for 500 days. Uh, and so it's just an incredible story of creativity and survival and figuring out, which is really like the journey of a startup, right? Because truthfully, Ernest Shackleton had countless near-death experiences when they were, when the ship got stuck in the ice and they had to get creative and it would have been so easy for them to just give up and assume they weren't going to make it. And every single man on that ship made it back alive after being shipwrecked for over 500 days. I mean, it's crazy that they survived that. So it's a, it's a great book on leadership and overcoming adversity and how do you stay positive when the odds are just completely stacked against you. Um, so, and it, it happens to be a really fun read too. So very entertaining book to, uh, to read, but for entrepreneurs, you'll totally connect with the challenges that, that uh, Ernest Shackleton faced. Great one. Thank you. Favorite movie or series? 
uh, favorite movie. Yeah, I'm going to go um, maybe a little non-traditional here. Um, but uh, <laughs> my favorite movie is actually Scarface. Um, you know, the story about uh, Al Pacino plays a drug dealer uh, in, the, in the 1980s. But it's just an entertaining movie. But again, there are some really great lines in that movie that are directly uh, applicable to startups. And I mean, there's a line in that movie where, you know, he's talking about a guy he does business and he says, I never liked him and I never trusted him. Now, the guy happens to be hanging out of a helicopter with this chain around his neck. But it's back to the, you know, never underestimate the importance of being liked, right? We all want to do business with, with people we like. But anyway, uh, it's a, it's a fun, entertaining movie. That's just, it's a great way to sort of disconnect from all the chaos um, and the challenges of running a startup and just be sort of mindlessly entertained, if you will. And to wrap up the favorite podcasts, excluding this one. <laughs> oh, shoot. You know, you, <laughs> um, yeah. One of my favorite content, uh, podcasts is how I built this. It's by Guy yeah. Ross. Yeah. Uh, there's so many good ones in there. Two of my very favorite uh, podcasts that he did on this topic. One was on the creation of Dave's Bread. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how many of your audience would be familiar with Dave's Bread, but in a nutshell, Dave's Bread is a very sort of high quality mass produced bread. And how he started that journey, he was an ex-convict actually. Uh, started working at a, at a cousin's bakery and had this idea, like, why can't you get decent bread in the grocery store, um, I don't know, you know, the, the bread we get here, this white, it's called Wonder Bread, this white bread, it's, oh, it's just absolutely the worst. And, and so the way that he had the vision to create this, eventually they got bought out by private equity. And now you literally find this, they started out, they got into Costco, but now they're in virtually every single grocery store. But the emotional journey that he went through and he co-founded with his cousin, he and his cousin actually don't even talk anymore. There was such a rift between the two of them, even though this was ultimately, I think they sold the business for over $300 million to private equity. Wow. But he talks very openly about the challenges. And then the other one that's really good is about Dyson, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and how um, he talks about, and we had this idea for a whole different kind of vacuum cleaner that he went to like every vacuum cleaner company and said, hey, I have a great idea for a vacuum. What do you think? And he got turned out by everyone. And they get turned out because everyone said, well, we need to sell bags, right? We have vacuum cleaners. We make money off of the disposables, the bags. If you're creating a vacuum cleaner that doesn't have a bag, we're not interested. Right. So, you know, just really interesting insights that entrepreneurs have into opportunities. And oftentimes when everybody else is telling you no, that's sort of when you know you actually might be on the right. When the incumbents are telling you no, that probably means you're on the right track. Love it. Adam, uh, thanks so much for making the time. It was really an extraordinary uh, experience to have you on, on the show. Thanks so much. No, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much for the invitation. And to the community, as you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best to help to make your life a little bit easier uh, starting up and scaling up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.